3: The rabbit hole went straight on like a tunnel for some way, and then dipped suddenly down, so suddenly that Alice had not a moment to think about stopping herself before she found herself falling down a very deep well.
4: Alice, we feel you.
3: Would the fall never come to an end? Oh yeah,
4: she is in a tight spot. How is she going to get out
3: of this? There were doors all round the hall, but they were all locked. And when Alice had been all the way down one side and up the other, trying every door, she walked sadly down the middle, wondering how she was ever to get out again. For you see, so many out-of-the-way things had happened lately that Alice had begun to think that very few things indeed were really impossible.
4: And that is the beauty of storytelling. Few things are impossible.
5: Oh, my ears and whiskers. How late it's getting.
4: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and unexpected wells of audio gems we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, and bring you the best of what we hear each week.
6: I just get in these things where, like, if I start going down this rabbit hole, it's the only thing we'll talk about. You can go down the rabbit hole. That's okay.
4: If you're a storyteller, falling down a rabbit hole is... Fantastic. It's a funhouse ride of surprise and discovery. You and your listener are side by side, careening through plot twists and turns, wind at your face, zigzagging, tumbling, twirling, until finally you come to rest. And you turn back and wonder how did I get here again? Down,
3: down, down.
4: Today on Resound, stories that start exploring one small thing and unexpectedly, end up telling a much richer story. Neil White was living large, with other people's largess, And when the chickens eventually came home to roost, he was sent to a minimum security prison in Carville, Louisiana. But when he got there, he discovered a world so hidden and unexpected, it may as well have been called Narnia. This is Phoebe Judge with No Place Like Home.
0: I mean we weren't driving hundred thousand dollar sports cars and 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 snorting cocaine, which was the drug of the day, but we had a boat, we had three cars, we had a four thousand square foot house. I mean, we were we were leading what I would consider an upper middle class life.
7: In the early nineties, Neil White owned Coast Magazine Corporate, a magazine publishing company in Gulfport, Mississippi.
0: And we had lots of perks from the magazine that Don't really go into any account. It's, you know, oh, we'd love for you to wear our suits because people pay attention to what you wear, and oh, we'd love for you to drive our cars, and we'd love for you to come eat at our restaurant. It's on us. And so there are all these these benefits, you know, business people would say, we're flying to uh, Jackson or Memphis or whatever. If you need a ride, let us know. You're welcome on a plane anytime. And so we led a lifestyle that, that we didn't even have to spend money for because we owned these media companies and nobody really was paying attention.
7: No one was paying attention. And so for a few years, no one noticed that Neil White was kiting checks. He had two corporate bank accounts, And he'd transfer large sums of money back and forth constantly so that both accounts always appeared flush with cash.
0: Because the way it used to work is you could write a check from yourself to yourself from one bank, deposit it in another bank, and that money would be there. But the next day the check would bounce because there was a 24-hour float. So you would write a check to yourself from yourself from a secondary account and deposit it in the original bank to cover it. So you're just buying time. Yeah, I was I was I was cheating time is what I was doing. It's sometimes called circular
7: kiting, and you can't do it that easily anymore. Banks have changed the way they operate. Checks are now cleared with electronic imaging that takes much less time to process. But back in the early 90s, Neil was able to pull it off, and he wasn't even that stressed about it.
0: I remember that um, I was doing this during a period before Christmas, and our family was planning this five-day vacation. And you can't leave town if you're doing this unless you have somebody who's going to make these transfers for you. And I was $200,000 in the hole on December 21st, and on December 23rd, we were leaving town for five days, and I was in a panic. But the money came in, and uh, a guy came through with a loan that we had been talking to. I made the $200,000 deposit uh, on the 23rd and left town.
7: How did you get caught?
0: The FDIC came in and did an audit and pointed it out to both banks, and they uh, called me to the bank and said, we will not accept any deposits that aren't cash or money orders. We're closing your accounts. Um, I sure hope you have money to cover this. I called my dad and said, Dad, I I just need to let you know because you'll hear through the grapevine. I've been caught short uh, was kiting checks. And he said, well, the first thing we need to do is cover it. How much do you need? He was ready to write the check. And I said, dad, you can't cover this. He said, no, I mean, my dad's a, a judge and a lawyer. He, he's middle-class. And I, I mean, I think he was thinking thirty, forty thousand $40,000. We'll mortgage the house. We'll take care of it. I said, $750,000. And he said, oh, well, we need to get you a lawyer.
7: And the lawyer couldn't get you out of it.
0: Oh, God, no. I mean, the only way you can get out of it is if you cover the loss. And then you still are committed, the, it's still a crime. You just, the federal government sentences you based on how much, in bank fraud anyway, how much a financial institution lost. So, had I been able to cover it, I probably would have gotten home confinement or probation or a fine or something like that. But because I couldn't cover the amount and ultimately they lost that money, the sentencing guidelines uh, said I should be sentenced to between 18 months and 24 months. And the judge took the lower recommendation and gave me an 18-month sentence.
7: On May 3rd, 1993, Neil White self-surrendered at a minimum security prison in Carville, Louisiana. His wife, Linda, dropped him there 45 minutes early.
0: Well, first of all, I took my children to school that morning uh, to first grade and to preschool and hugged them and reminded them that, as the psychologist suggested, that Daddy was going to camp and that I would see him in a week when they could come visit. And Linda and I got in our blue Ford Explorer and drove the hour and 10-minute drive to Carville, and it was, uh, it was deafening silence.
7: Was she mad at you?
0: She was mad at me, but more than that, she was hurt. I mean, she, you know, she lost everything, too. She had she had believed my story that I was going to take care of everything. And so, you know, in the overall scheme of life, what these things I'm about to say are not awful because there are people who are homeless and can't afford food, but, you know— all of her, we were members of all these country clubs and yacht clubs, and we got banished from there. And all of her places that she shopped and had charge accounts, they closed them. And her friends who were still in this, you know, elite social area with very few exceptions were, uh, you know, shunning at some level. I mean, she was was humiliated and mortified uh, at all sorts of levels. And, you know, the father of her children who were six and three were about to be away for a year. They would miss every significant event in their life and if she wanted to keep us all in touch, she was faced with driving that distance every weekend, spending her weekends in a prison visiting room.
7: Here's the thing. It wasn't just a prison visiting room she'd be bringing her kids to. White-collar criminals weren't the only ones who'd been locked up in the enormous old facility in Carville, Louisiana. And the other people living there, they were all but forgotten by the outside world.
0: I showed up with my leather bag with books and racquetball rackets and tennis shoes and shorts like I was going to camp, and as I waited for the guard to come collect me, I saw a man limping down the hallway. And when he got to the window closest to me, he waved and had no fingers, and that was the first time I knew anything was awry.
7: Neil went inside and checked in and immediately asked the prison guard about the man with no fingers.
0: And he said... That's a patient. And I said, What kind of patient? And he said, A Hansen's disease patient. And I said, What is Hansen's disease? And he said, It used to be called leprosy.
2: What was and your that's thought? when I
0: began to oh, I began to panic. I knew that I could survive a one year prison sentence, but I thought if I if I contracted a disease that disfigured me, that I would never be able to touch my children again. I, I thought my life will be over.
7: Neil White was to serve his sentence at a minimum security prison located inside the last remaining leprosy colony in the continental United States. An LA Times article from 1993 said prisoners are being brought in to, quote, use the spaces left empty when older patients die. Everyone we asked credited the idea of putting the prison inside the leprosy colony back to one man, Dr. John Duffy. He was the director of Carville at the time, but he was also the former director of the Bureau of Prisons. He knew that Carville's patient population was dwindling, and he saw a business opportunity.
0: There were all these empty rooms, and he was fiscally responsible and said, you know, instead of spending money building a new prison, let's put invalid inmates, people who need health care here because there was a hospital for the leprosy patients, and uh, nonviolent offenders who can maintain the grounds. Uh, You know, it sounded like a, a, a decent financial decision, but what he didn't realize is you would have... The last 130 Americans who were imprisoned for a disease, 500 federal inmates, including Jimmy Hoffa's lawyer and the man who gave Arnold Schwarzenegger his first steroids, 100 prison guards, all thrown together in this colony, a convergence of cultures like there's never been before or after.
7: When Neil White says that the leprosy patients were imprisoned, he's not kidding. The facility opened in 1894 as the Louisiana Leper Home. By 1921, leprosy was thought to be so contagious that the federal government began moving patients to Carville from all over the country. If people refused to go, the police, or bounty hunters, would put them in shackles
3: and bring them against their will. See, this here, this is, um, see, this is a shackle.
7: Shackles, what were they used for?
3: Bring the patient here. If you don't, if you don't come voluntarily... Then they put the shackle and bring you here.
7: This is Mr. Pete. He was the first person I met when I flew to Louisiana to see Carville for myself. And he told me to call him Mr. Pete. He's a short man with glasses that seemed just a little too big for his face. He was dressed in a flannel shirt with suspenders and a khaki jacket. It wasn't until he reached out to shake my hand that I realized he was missing fingers, part of his ear... He's the guy who waved at Neil White. He showed me the shackles that are now part of a small museum at Carville, and he also showed me a collection of former patients' shoes, specially made because the loss of toes is one of the biggest challenges leprosy patients deal with. Mr. Pete told me he was born in the Virgin Islands, and when he was six, he was diagnosed with leprosy and quarantined in a hospital there. He had
3: no idea what was happening. They never tell me anything. They just tell my my mother, and not me. Why
7: did you think you were in the hospital?
3: Well, because I had a little, a little mark on my side of my face, and when they take tests to find it was Hansen's disease, and at that time people were very scared of the disease, so they just bring me to the hospital there. My mother come, she come visit me. She couldn't touch me, I couldn't touch her. She stay outside the fence, I stay inside the fence.
7: Was that confusing to you when you were a little boy that you
3: couldn't touch your mother? Well, yes, it was confusion. She's on the outside and I'm, I'm in the inside. And I still didn't know what's going on. I couldn't touch her. And she couldn't touch me either. He stayed in that hospital
7: until he was 21 years old, when his family packed him aboard an army plane to Carville. Mr. Pete never saw any members of his family again. When a patient like Mr. Pete got to Carville, he or she could not leave. But they weren't legally prisoners either. It was this strange limbo, where you hadn't done anything wrong, but the outside world saw you as a danger, for a long time, patients couldn't
3: even vote or get married. Some some of the family didn't want them on. The friends didn't want to have anything to do with them. So they just came back and stay until and they, they die.
7: And and when you got here, you did realize that this disease people were scared of. What, would you talk about it with other people here about how you were kind of kept away?
3: No, they didn't. They wasn't interested. Like now, they did. You came here. That's it. Nobody, even the patient, we never speak about it. We never. So we're we here. That's it.
7: You wouldn't talk about it with your friends about about being kind of outcast or away from society. You would just.
3: You were just here. Yeah, I was just here. They, they they were the same thing, you know. They were was out from society, outcast like me. So they didn't did. They didn't interested in all that, all that. In 1941,
7: doctors began testing a drug that could slowly reverse some of the symptoms of leprosy. They made progress. By the early 50s, doctors recognized that with treatment, the disease was not contagious, and they lifted the strict quarantine. Some patients were discharged, and others were encouraged to own cars and come and go as they pleased. But most of them didn't want to go anywhere they have been locked away for so long that the prospect of leaving terrified them. As one patient wrote, we belong with the secret people.
0: Pete, for example, if you look at his hands, his hands are greatly deformed. And uh, his face and ears show the ravages of disease. And he just doesn't want to face what he would have to face in the outside world.
7: This is Dr. Jim Crambule, former director of the National Hansen's Disease Programs, which is the official name for Carville.
0: Basically patients have to to lie about their deformities, you know, an industrial plant accident or something like that. And uh, he just was not willing to face that. I guess the parallel is, you've heard all the stories about a prisoner being released from prison after 20 years, and the first thing he does is he goes and robs a bank so he can go back in again, because they just can't deal with the outside world. <laughs>
7: It's hard to imagine what the patients must have thought when, after so long, the outside world was thrown at them in the form of 500 convicted bankers, doctors, and lawyers. The inmates were not supposed to interact with the patients at any time, but Neil White worked in the cafeteria, so there was no way around it.
0: And I helped them with their trays and pushed their wheelchairs and wrote their menu board. You have to remember, in addition to this weird convergence... The leprosy patients were older, and nobody, they hadn't seen new residents there in ages. And most of them looked at on us as children or grandchildren. They would talk to us, and the guards would say, you're not supposed to talk to him. And they would say, you can't tell me what to do, because they weren't under the Bureau of Prison. So it really was something that got dropped as, as the experiment went on, and we talked all the time, and were friendly, and it, it exchanged hellos. And when guards weren't around, we talked all the time. Neal
7: became especially close with one patient in particular, an elderly woman named Ella Bounds.
0: Well, the first time I saw her, I was in the hallway, and I was trying to find my room. It was the first day, first hour I was there. And I saw her wobbling in that wheelchair, cranking those handles, coming toward me. And I knew she wasn't uh, an inmate. It was an all-male prison. I assumed she wasn't a prison guard, so uh, assuming she had leprosy. She had no legs, her her. her dress was hanging over the edge of her wheelchair, I stood to the side and I held my breath. And as she passed me, she cut her eyes over and said, smiled and said, there's no place like home. And she went around the corner and an inmate came up behind me and said, that girl's father dropped her off here when she was 12 and he never came back. And she was about 80 at the time. And then he asked me if I was still feeling sorry for myself.
7: It didn't take Neil long to understand that it was basically impossible for him to catch leprosy. And with that fear gone, he was just trying to keep himself occupied and finish out his time. He remembers one night in the spring when the leprosy patients were getting ready for a dance.
0: Four of us inmates were setting up the bandstands and the tables and the chairs. And as the band was about to start, there were no guards around, so Ella asked me if I wanted to stick around for the first song. And so I did, and so did the other inmates. And I I pushed Ella around the edge of the dance floor to the music in her wheelchair. Two of the other inmates, uh, big, strong bodybuilders who were the steroid gurus, uh, guinea pigs, went into the middle of the patients and broke in on one of their dates during this dance and it really made the the leprosy patient mad uh, this, this woman he was with we don't know but we think she may have been a prostitute anyway she was she was uh, rather attractive and at the end of the song the uh, leprosy patient pointed what was left of his index finger and said you know you're not invited no inmates at our dance And it was very quiet, and the four of us slowly walked out of the ballroom. And as we were walking back toward the inmate side of the colony, my roommate said, did we just get kicked out of a leopard dance?
7: If you ask him now, Neil says he feels pretty lucky that he served his time at Carville.
0: I was there for 18 months, actually only spent a year, for mishandling you know, close to a million dollars. And I was standing in front of people who had been quarantined for 68 years because they were susceptible to a bacterial infection and it was it was almost impossible to muster up self-pity in the in the face of that they were they were such remarkable people and it put my problems albeit self self-made in such perspective
7: he was let out on April 25th 1994 the prison experiment ended about four months later and all of the remaining inmates were reassigned why was it so short-lived?
0: The, the Bureau of Prisons wanted to turn the facility into this huge prison with a couple of thousand inmates. And when they became a tenant of the leprosy patients, which is really public health services, they assumed that those 130 patients would be dying off in a year or two. What they didn't realize is that leprosy doesn't kill you. And so there became this battle for the Bureau of Prisons trying to evict the leprosy patients. It was just horrible. So this the the inmates and the leprosy patients got along fine. You would think that's where the problem was. It was these two government bureaucracies. And what happened was public health services and the leprosy patients and the Carville Historic Society clandestinely got the facility on the National Registry of Historic Places. And so the Bureau of Prisons could not make the... Uh, the modifications they needed to make the building secure, and they abandoned the prison and went home.
7: But Ella and Mr. Pete and other patients continued their lives at Carville, many of them entering their seventh or eighth decade there. In 1998, about four years after Neil left, the remaining patients were offered an annual stipend of $33,000 to leave Carville and move to a nursing home. Mr. Pete declined. He chose to stay. When I met him two years ago... He was one of six patients left. They had the whole place to themselves. Mr. Pete rode around the giant empty hallways on his bicycle. He'd been there for 63 years. I asked him whether he'd ever consider
3: leaving, even for a night. Sometimes I said, well, I wish I was out on the outside and I could get out. But when I look, I said, well, people are going to ask me a lot of questions. What happened to your fingers? Why, why you got this spot? Why this that's Well, I don't want to go through all that. I stay here. It was easier to stay here. It was easier. Cause we're all the same patient. You know what I mean? But you go, they people, some people accept most people wouldn't, even now.
7: Will you stay here? Will you stay here uh, for the rest of your life? The, oh yeah.
3: I'm I'm too I'm too old to be getting out now. I'm almost thirty-five years old, so this is it. I got my spot over there in the pecan tree. The spot he showed me under the pecan
7: tree was part of the cemetery at Carville. The cemetery is a big one. There are a lot
3: of graves there. Well, put me in a nice shady pecan tree. You, you plan to be buried at, at Carville here. Yeah. You have you you have your choice. I know my family are not going to take me, take me home. It costs customers some money to ship the body.
7: Have you have you ever left Louisiana since you got here?
3: No, never left Louisiana. I went and, I went to Mississippi, but I that's what, I come back the, the same night. But I never been up to New York and all them places. If that's what you mean. Would you like to? Yeah, uh, I sit and so much of people, I, I might get lost. I know in New York, the people ain't got time to look at you. They're just busy, busy doing nothing, but they're busy. It's
7: unclear whether Mr. Pete will get his wish to be buried at Carville. Last month, the remaining patients were finally forced to move to a nursing home in Baton Rouge. So Carville now sits empty. Neil White still talks to Mr. Pete on the phone sometimes. They spoke last week.
4: No Place Like Home was produced by Phoebe Judge and Lauren Sporer for their podcast, Criminal. For a link to Neil White's memoir, In the Sanctuary of Outcasts, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, a simple email to the wrong address transports us across the ocean to a time and place that might have disappeared if it hadn't been for a box of cookies.
6: I said, "What's the status on the cookies?" Yar, me so hungry with a picture of Cookie Monster. <laughs> In my mind, I was thinking, "No one's gonna, no one's gonna believe this. This is what a stupid email to write to somebody."
4: Support for Resound is provided by Burnt City Brewing, brewers of freight handler milk stout and a wide array of brews. The Burnt City Brewing Pub and Bowling Alley are open for dinner seven nights a week, located on Lincoln, south of Diversey. More information at burntcitybrewing.com. Hold
2: up!
4: Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. As we listen to all the great work flowing to us from various radio shows and podcasts from all over the world, we're always looking for stories that, for lack of a better term, play well together. Today, Two That Do, tales that travel down a rabbit hole. They start in one place and unpredictably end up thousands of miles away in our next story, Quite Literally. It starts with a typo that leads to a missent email about cookies and ends up in World War II Japan. Just how it winds its way through time and space from the innocent to the infamous is what we love about this story from Reply All, called Shipped to Timbuktu.
1: So I've got this friend. Let's call him Dale. Dale has a Gmail address that's pretty generic, like... D.Smith at gmail.com. And people who have email addresses like these get a lot of emails that aren't meant for them, like email wrong numbers. And this happens to Dale all the time. Last time I saw him, he just got an email written completely in Spanish from a kid somewhere asking if he could turn in an assignment late. Another time, he got a letter congratulating him on the low interest rate for his two door Chevy Cobalt. He doesn't have one. Unfortunately for the rest of the world, Dale's a nice guy, but he likes to mess with people, he likes to play pranks. So Dale answers these emails. Here's one he got a while back.
6: I think it started off, hey ladies, to all Calgary area district commissioners and district cookie advisors. And then it started talking about how they had a bunch of stale cookies that they didn't know what to do with and we gotta move them off the shelves. And uh, if they're past the expiration date, then we can't use them in the
1: next cookie campaign. The emails continue and Dale learns that the world of professional cookie advising is surprisingly bureaucratic. At the top, there's a national cookie advisor, and then beneath her, there are provincial cookie advisors who report up, and then beneath them, there are district cookie advisors. He's picturing a corporate office building with a lot of people in fancy business clothes talking about cookies all day. And Dale decides that what he should do is send an intentionally stupid email detailing all these asinine solutions to their stale cookie problem. He says the advisors should sharpie over the expiration dates on the packages, or he says they could just eat all the stale cookies themselves.
6: In my mind, I was thinking, no one's going to believe this. This is, what a stupid email to write to somebody. Who, Who would hire a person with suggestions like these?
1: Instead, Cynthia, who's the Calgary area cookie advisor, responds to Dale's email with complete polite cheerfulness. She sends him a cookie freshness calculator to help him sort his stale cookies from his fresh cookies. So Dale responds with even stupider messages. He was trying to make it more obvious that he was just kidding. I said,
6: what's the status on the cookies? Yar, me so hungry with a picture of Cookie Monster. (laughs) And I think she responded something along the lines of, those orders were supposed to go in a month ago, or did I misunderstand your question?
1: Rather than clarifying, Dale asks her, why are we even in the cookie advising business? He says his clients, they're all about chocolate bars now.
6: And Cynthia responded, chocolate bars? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. All of my other suggestions were met with like, oh, maybe I I misunderstood or something. But this one was very emphatic. It It was like chocolate bars.
1: It actually seemed like Dale had maybe touched a nerve because after that, Cookie Advisor World went completely quiet.
6: There was radio silence after that. I felt bad. I felt like I was in a little bit too deep maybe
1: the original email he'd gotten had been meant for a woman named Debbie. What if he'd gotten Debbie in trouble or even just made her look bad? I'm a little, I'm a little
6: afraid. I'd like to think that, um, oh, they just got it sorted out and, and now it's funny and, and Debbie is in on the joke and that um, everybody can laugh at me. Um, and I hope that they're not laughing at poor Debbie. They're, they're, you know, just people trying to do their cookie job.
1: Hi, Cynthia? Yes, it's me. Hi, it's PJ. How are you doing? I wanted to find out if Dale's prank had hurt anybody. So I tracked down Cynthia. She lives in Calgary. Cynthia has multiple sclerosis, so it can be hard for her to talk. Her friend Sheila volunteered to help out, and I read them the emails. And of course, the obvious solution is to eat them during our next member meeting. Please discuss with the rest of area, and I will forward your decision on to National. Thanks so much. Do you remember getting that?
3: You know, I don't, but
4: we, we get a lot of questions um, all across Alberta at, at cookie time. Often they have suggestions that don't always fly. <laughs>
8: <laughs> <laughs> so we find, we find a way to respond to them <laughs> as best we can.
1: Cynthia and Sheila explained that they were part of Girl Guides. In the U.S., we have Girl Scouts. Most everywhere else, they call them Girl Guides. Like the Girl Scouts, they wear uniforms, collect merit badges, and sell cookies to their parents' friends. Coordinating the thousands of underage cookie salespeople can be a logistical headache. And so some adults volunteer as cookie advisors. Those advisors frequently field confused emails, and they're used to handling them diplomatically. That's why Cynthia was so patient with Dale. It was her job. But she was also very patient with me. Even as for reasons that I don't quite understand, I found myself explaining to her the entire pattern of events that had led Dale to email her. I guess the email was meant for Debbie, but it went to a Dale. Oh, now it's starting to make a little bit of sense. The thing about talking to Cynthia and Shill on the phone is that they had this tone of voice. It had been in the emails too, and I was starting to think of it as girl guide voice. Girl guide voice is cheerful and patient, unrelentingly so. Is there like a cookie general?
8: Cookie okay, general? No. <laughs> <laughs> We we have advisors and commissioners, but that's that's about the the extent of the military term.
1: <laughs> and when I started reading about Girl Guides, I found out that that helpful sunny tone is actually hardwired into their original mission statement, which reads quote A guide smiles and sings under all difficulties. So all difficulties. When I first read this, I'm thinking that this is hyperbole.
5: Hello,
1: hi. Can you hear me? Okay.
5: I can hear you. Can you hear me?
1: It is not. I talked to this woman named Janie Hampton, and she told me about this thing that happened that I literally found unbelievable. So a few years ago, Janie decides to write a book making fun of the Girl Guides.
5: I have to admit, when I started writing the book, I thought, you know, I'm going to make this a bit of a satire and laugh at them.
1: Honestly, it was sort of a Dale thing to do. And Janie says most people think about Girl Guides the way she did. They're not considered cool
5: what we call naff nowadays. What's naff? But those um, sort of unfashionable, nerdy. Right. Do you use the word nerd?
1: Oh, we absolutely (laughs) use the word nerd. I've had it applied to me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So Janie sets out to tease some nerds. But then she starts researching. And one day she's deep in the Girl Guide's archive in their London headquarters, and she finds this old notebook. It's small, 7 by 10, And the book is a handwritten log of everything that one Girl Guide Troop did years ago.
5: And it said we did skipping and we did knots and we did all sorts of jolly things. And then I came across this song that they'd written. And it said, we sang our song yesterday. And it went, we might have been shipped to Timbuktu. We might have been shipped to Kalamazoo. It's not repatriation, nor is it yet starvation. It's simply concentration. In Chefu. And I thought, what on earth does that mean? Concentration in Chifu.
1: Janie does not know where Chifu is, but she's sure it's not in England, so she looks it up. Chifu is, was, a place in China, a coastal city. It's a good 7,000 miles from London. According to the guide's logbook, the song had been written and performed by a group of girl guides for a concert on Christmas Day, 1942. The Christmas concert, Janie discovers, was held in Chifu, but not at a school. The Girl Guides sang their song in a concentration camp. Janie was baffled. Why would a concentration camp in China have a singing Girl Guide troupe? So Janie starts digging, and she finds another, more complete log of what happened to these Girl Guides. It's a website run by an old Belgian man named Leopold.
8: Leopold Pandere, 74 years old.
1: So the good news, Leopold was an actual witness. He was born in China, ended up in the same camp as these girl guides. The bad news.
8: I tried to remember something, but nothing comes back to me.
1: He has absolutely no memories. Except for this nightmare he used to have when he was a kid. At the time, it hadn't made sense to him. But later, he thought it must have taken place at the camp. What was the dream that you would have? Well,
8: I'm there in the hot sun, the blue sky, it's a brown slope, it's a brown earth, and there are big stones next to myself, dirty earth, and people running all over the place.
1: Are there sounds?
8: No sound, absolutely no sound. Somebody picks me up, and then I wake up, that's, that's all I remember. But the problem is, or rather, the problem, the, the curiosity is that that dream came back very often.
1: Leopold grows up, and as an adult, he wants to know about this place that he used to dream about. And so he builds a website. He invites people to write in with memories of the camp. And the story he learns is pretty crazy. Japan's latest invasion of China, which has already lasted two years, is war on a huge scale. So I did not know this, but during World War II, when Japan occupied China... They built concentration camps that were filled with American and British and other European civilians. Japanese put their prisoners of war to work. Civilians who'd been living in China. One of those camps was called Shen. That was Leopold's camp. And among the inmates at Shen were a group of children. They were American and British. They were mostly the kids of missionaries. And they'd been studying at a boarding school called Qifu. Japanese troops invaded Qifu, and they captured the kids and eventually brought them to Shen
5: With their teachers, but no parents. So about 150 children who for four years were in this camp. And the teachers had very sensibly taken with them um, books, paper, musical instruments.
1: And of course, one more thing.
5: Brownie uniforms, guide uniforms, all the things they thought, well, we're going to need this sort of thing to keep the kids occupied.
1: In the Japanese camps, there was very little food. Prisoners died of starvation. Take Wei Shen. Imprisoned monks would smuggle in eggs and then everybody would share them. And then they'd also have the kids eat the ground up eggshells just to get some extra calcium. And the camp had almost no infrastructure. The prisoners had to build their little world from nothing. Their own kitchen, their own laboratories, their own hospitals, and their own Girl Guide unit. The logbook Janie had found was the record kept by one of the Girl Guide's leaders. The leaders were called Brown Owls. This one was a woman in her 20s and the tone of her writing was the exact same cheerful, impervious to bad news tone that Dale's cookie advisor email thread had. had. This is the entry from the day they were marched into the camp. Hello, what's this, behind bars? Yes, it's Wei Shen camp. Well, I guess there's a good deal of fun to be got out of this. Just the place to earn some badges. According to the logbook, the Brown Owl ran the troop as if it were any other girl guide unit, concentration camp or not
5: they were all told, it doesn't matter how disgusting the food is, we still want good table manners. It doesn't matter how hungry you are, you're not going to steal. You're still going to do a good deed every day and help other people.
1: Obviously, the grim sadness of life in a concentration camp should have overpowered this miniature world that the brown owls were trying to build for their young girls. But according to Janie, that's not what happened. Instead, it was the Girl Guides who started to exert an influence on the adults around them. They led by example.
5: It made a difference to all the adults in this camp and kept them going. The whole atmosphere was better because they had this very strong promise that they wouldn't stop smiling, they wouldn't give up, they would carry on singing songs, they would insist on everybody washing.
1: This is the point where I wondered, was this true? I didn't think that anybody was necessarily lying to me. I just thought probably the brown owl had left the bad stuff out of her logbook. I figured she'd put the best possible spin on an awful situation. That's what girl guides do, right? Oh, and the door's open. Oh, hello. Come on in. How Hi. Fortunately, there's a woman who's still alive and remembers Wei Shen. It's the first time I think I've been right on time for things. <laughs>
9: time that out? I coming mean, from New York.
1: Her name is Mary Previty. She lives in New Jersey. I visit her with my producer, Fia Benin. Oh, by
9: the way, can I pour you some tea? I am so bad.
1: Mary Previty is a small, beautiful, 82-year-old woman. She's also one of the happiest people I've ever met. I don't know if anybody I've interviewed has ever fully broken into song, unprompted. Mary did. Seven times. She's like a real-life Mary Poppins or Maria von Trapp. Also, unlike Leopold, Mary has a phenomenal memory. She told me about the day that Japanese troops arrived at her boarding school.
9: The day after Pearl Harbor was attacked, the Japanese showed up on the doorstep of our school. They put seals with Japanese writing on everything, the tables, the chairs, the pianos, the desks. Everything belonged to the great emperor of Japan. And then they put armbands on us. Everyone had to wear an armband, A for American, B for British, whatever our nationality was.
1: The girls were eventually transferred into Weishen, and Mary became a concentration camp girl guide. This was over 70 years ago. But when Mary talks about the camp, it sounds like she's still there. Like she's 12 years old again. She's had this story about the brown owls insisting on good table manners. Absolutely true.
9: So you're eating some kind of glop out of, of maybe boiled animal grain, because gaoliang is a broom corn that the Chinese feed to their animals, was often what they fed us. And, and you're eating it with, out of a soap dish or a tin can. And here comes Miss Stark up behind us, one of our teachers. Mary Taylor... Do not slouch over your food while you are eating. Do not talk while you have food in your mouth. And there are not two sets of manners, one set of manners for the princesses in Buckingham Palace and another set of manners for the Weishan concentration camp.
1: Mary was separated from her parents, unsure of when she'd be released, surrounded by attack dogs and men with guns. She says that she spent a lot of her time just thinking about earning merit badges. In the winter, it would get cold, freezing. But no heat was provided to the prisoners by the guards. Instead, Mary and her friends had to go collect leftover coal shavings from the guards' quarters.
9: I remember now the ritual of going to Japanese quarters to get the coal dust and carry it back.
1: Like making a new pencil from old pencil shavings. Except the coal was heavy. It had to be passed bucket by bucket in a line of girl guides. Then the shavings had to be mixed with dust and water and dried into balls of coal. It was long, hard work. And then at the end of it, you still had to go use that recycled coal in a pot-bellied stove and keep the stove lit so that everybody would be warm. It sounded horrible, like a childhood from a Charles Dickens novel. Except Mary remembers it as being surprisingly fun. A game she could win.
9: I and my partner Marjorie Harrison... We won the competition in our dormitory of which stove lighting team made the pot-bellied stove in the winter turn red hot more times than any other girl in the camp. Well, you know, here I am, 82 years old, and what do I choose to tell you? turned red more times with me and Marjorie Harrison than any other girl in our
1: dorm. When you describe it, it sounds like you're describing summer camp instead of describing like a concentration camp. Did it feel like summer camp? Did you no,
9: ever... No, I never was in a summer camp, so I can't give you a... Depend- <laughs> no, no, no. Absolutely not. When you, when you had guard dogs, bayonet drills, electrified wires, barrier walls... Uh, pillboxes with with guards, armed guards in them. You know, you weren't in a summer camp. There was. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this was fun city. I'm telling you, we lived a miracle where grown-ups preserved our childhood.
1: There's reference in the logbook to the trouble the adults were having keeping it together, but you'd have to know to look for it. A scout leader writes one entry that reads, Dear me, what a tragedy. Brown Owl had an attack of neuralgia. Let's hope she's better for our meeting. Neurology is a nerve disease, but what that actually meant was that the brown owl was having a nervous breakdown. Years later, Mary went and tracked down one of the grown-ups.
9: I said, Miss Carr, what were you feeling when we were in a concentration camp? Well, all the grown-ups in the camp knew about the rape of Nanking, king the atrocities that the, the guards that the soldiers had done when they came to the southern, southern city of Nanking.
1: Japanese soldiers went door to door, systematically raping and killing tens of thousands of Chinese civilians.
9: So they knew what could happen. The teachers knew what could happen. So I said to Ms. Carr, what were you feeling? She said, well, I would pray to God that when they lined us up along the death trenches, and they were outside the camp, when they lined us up to shoot us so our bodies would fall into the death pits, that I would be one of the first so I didn't have to see it..
1: So there were two sets of prayers. At night, the grown-ups, many of them not much older than the kids themselves, prayed grimly for a fast death. And then they woke up in the morning and they sung psalms with the kids. Set to bouncy camp melodies.
9: It was like you you weren't gonna be afraid if you could sing about it. We would sing Day is Done, gone the sun, from the sea, from the hills, from the sky. All is well, safely rest. God is nigh. How could you be afraid when you're singing about all is well, safely rest, God is nigh? How could you be afraid of that? So we were constantly putting things into music. Often, you know, there was a little bit of a twist of fun to it. Um, one of the songs that we we sang was, We might have been shipped to Timbuktu. We might have been shipped to Kalamazoo. It's not repatriation, nor is it yet stagnation. It's only concentration in Chifu.
1: There probably aren't many places on earth where you have less reason to be cheerful than a concentration camp. But it turns out, in a place like that, being able to be cheerful, to have a positive outlook, it's not dopey or silly. It's how you survive. How you tell the story matters.
9: I can still, for example, uh, the, one, of the, one of the things that we sang when the Japanese were marching us into concentration camp was the first verse of Psalm 46. God is our refuge. Our refuge and our strength, and on it goes, in trouble we will not be afraid. All of these words just sung into our hearts. That sticks. It's like you've got a groove sticking in the gramophone record. I am safe. I am safe. I am safe. That was just profound.
1: The first Chifu Brownies warded off despair for four years. Until finally, on August 17th, 1945, they were rescued.
9: It was a windy day.
1: Mary remembers the American plane flying low over the camp.
9: And then the parachutes falling from the sky. All I knew was I was running to find the, the, whoever was that was dropping out of the sky beyond the barrier walls.
8: I'm there in the hot sun, the blue sky, It's a brown slope, it's a brown earth. And the people went berserk. People running all over the place. People were crying, screaming, dancing. Somebody picks me up, and then I wake up.
1: Leopold says that the nightmare that used to haunt him is just his memory of that day, of being a four-year-old, lost and wandering around a riot of freed concentration camp survivors. Most of the people who were there on Liberation Day are now dead one of the dormitories at Wei a Memorial, but mostly, this place exists as a footnote in some books, on a website designed by a Belgian man, and in the memories of the remaining survivors. It's a half-disappeared world with a strong pull on the people who do still remember it. A couple weeks ago at the grocery store, I watched a gang of brownie scouts rush down the pet food aisle. They had their uniforms on, covered in merit badges for public speaking and backyard astronomy. They were happy and safe in their own world, well-fed and rich, and a million miles from Shen, I wondered if they knew what they might be capable of.
4: Shipped to Timbuktu was produced by PJ Vogt, Alex Goldman, and Alex Bloomberg. For the podcast, Reply All. We invited P.J. to speak at the 2016 Third Coast Conference in Chicago, where the best producers gather to talk about their craft and share tips and secrets. Well, as it turns out, P.J. loves these rabbit hole stories so much, he prepared an entire conference session about making them, called We'll Drive Till We Find an Exit. Now, in this excerpt we're going to share... He's talking to a room full of radio makers. So you're going to hear a little producer speak, like the terms off-prep, which is when you get such surprise answers in an interview you have to switch gears, and two-way, which is just an interview with someone on the phone. But you'll easily catch his drift.
1: Uh, I work for Reply All. We do a lot of stories, uh, but the stories that we love the most, the stories that we talk about internally for a long time and like get the most excited about, are the kinds of stories I'm going to talk about today, which are basically like stories that um, we know very little about what they're going to be when we start them. Or maybe we think we do, but we're wrong. Um, and so the, I'm going to like walk through one specific story that when it started seemed very simple and turned out not to be. Um, okay, so the way it started was that we were very desperate for ideas, and I had seen like some article somewhere about this website called TripSet, um, but what it is is like this website where if you're too high on drugs, you can go to it, and some stranger somewhere will like talk you down. It seems like possibly it could be the character profile of the guy who runs the site, um, and maybe you'd get to just kind of like experience the world. Like, who are these people? Why do they do it? What is it like? So the most deadly words at Replyall are, this is going to be a simple two-way. But that's like what we thought it was. We're like, we're just gonna talk to this guy. If he's a great talker, we got a story. If not, we're not gonna kill ourselves trying to make it work. Even before we talked to him, we had this sort of dream idea that if we could get him to describe one situation he'd been in, like one person who was in dire need and do it really dramatically, then that was gonna be the beginning of the story. Like you wouldn't even know that this was about a website. You'd feel like it was like an emergency, hotline, real life. So that was gonna be the first thing that happened. And then we were gonna like zoom out and be like, but wait guys. It's a website. And everybody would feel like, surprise and shock. It would be wonderful. And then we'd meet Reality, the guy who runs it. And he was going to be this fantastic talker. And he was going to spin like, what does he worry about? And what are the other people like? And we had this like dream version. If everything works, this is our story. So we go in with this. Um, he is hes not a good talker. But the, the one thing, and it's not like a huge thing, but the one moment in the interview <clears throat> that felt really good or better, or whatever. was not something I'd been looking for. It was like off prep. Um, I'm going to play you guys some tape. So a lot of your time is spent talking to people who are very high, or talking to people who are friends online, but in a community that, you know, spends a lot of time thinking about drugs and drug safety. When you go out in the real world, does it affect how you see just people in the real world?
2: Um i uh, i i don't know
8: i mean i'm i the the the, the two worlds really don't
6: intersect for me much uh apart from you know when i do go and meet people from Tripsit. Trip. but i mean i i i don't feel the same sense of generosity elsewhere in my life i think really so maybe i'm not comfortable
2: with saying that and,
1: so like, this was very small. All he said basically was that he thought the people on drugs were nicer than the people off drugs, which I just didn't expect him to say. Like that surprised me. And so we started talking for a while again, like off the prep about hallucinogenics. And he said that like he walks around the world, he sees people and they're so like clammed up and anxious and unkind. And he just thinks like, you should take hallucinogenic drugs. You'll be fine. And, like, I had never heard somebody make that case in a was, like, at all persuasive. And, personally, like, as a human, as a, like, human like the one he was describing, like, clenched up and anxious and moody, um, I was like, huh, that's neat. And it was, like, the kind of thing where, I was like, well, this interview doesn't work, but when I went home, I was, like, talking to my friends about this weird thing that had happened in this interview. So, we decided to kill this story because it wasn't very good. A bunch of months pass until we actually pick this up again, and we take kind of, like, the original beats for our story, more or less... And what they've led us to is a new question, not the one we wanted to ask. So originally, we were just like, what's going on on this website? Not the world's best question. And now we have one that's like kind of more provocative and interesting, like I actually care about, which is, could LSD make you a better person? It's also kind of a dumb question, and we like dumb questions. So we go to phase two of the story. It's no longer a simple two-way. Um, we found this guy, James Fadiman, who was in the 60s, he was an LSD researcher when the government paid for LSD research. Like, he said that people should take a tiny amount uh, every day in the morning, but he thought that if you just did a little bit, you would have what he'd observed were these, like, long-term good effects, like, more empathy, better focus, less junk food, whatever, without having to, like, you know, listen to, like, the bad Beatles songs all the time or whatever. So we liked this, we didn't know where we were going, but it just felt like we have an actual question, we're meeting people, like let's keep moving. So we had our question, we had a character, this is where the story entered like phase three, like we put another structure on top, um, which is, we decided to do this experiment where I would microdose on LSD and go to work for a couple weeks.
4: Which in fact he did. And you can hear just how that LSD rabbit hole worked out for him by checking out Reply All, episode number 44. You can also listen to the rest of his conference session by going to thirdcoastfestival.org or subscribing to our new podcast, The Third Coast Pocket Conference. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn of the Third Coast Festival. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for Resound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.